As you find your seats, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you in the pew. You can look there for uh, God's Word. We're going to be in Exodus chapter uh, 17 this morning as we continue our sermon series for the rescue of us all. We're looking at some themes in the book of Exodus, the themes of how God has delivered us and rescued us. We're going to be in Exodus 17 as well as 1 Corinthians a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 10 as well. There was a German pastor. His name was Guten, uh, Gunter Ruttenborn, if I got that right. And it's interesting, this German pastor, he wrote a play right after World War II. Right after World, uh, right after World War II, right after all that happened. And the play's name was The Sign of Jonah. And there they saw Germany, and Germany was really standing like shocked. They, I mean, they, were, they were beaten in the rubble of the Third Reich. And he writes this play, and he asks the question of the play, who is to blame for the Holocaust? I mean, I think it's kind of gutsy, is it not? I mean, here you have a, a German pastor, here you have a, a land that was incredibly defeated, and here you have them bearing their shame of what has happened is it's emerging out of World War II, and you realize what actually was happening to the Jewish people. And he asks the question, and he does it through playwright, and he basically says, hey, who's to blame for the Holocaust? And it says, it's interesting, in, in this, this soldier will say, hey, we were just following orders. And the industrialist will say, we were just trying to keep up with production. And a citizen was, would say, you know, we just didn't really want to get involved. And like passing the buck. But then they all came to the reality. We're all guilty. I mean, we're all guilty of the Holocaust. I mean, some were guilty by their words and some were guilty by their silence. Some were guilty by what they did and some were guilty by what they didn't do. And they came to the conclusion, watch this, you know what? We're all to blame, but we're not most to blame. Their decision was, hey, we all are culpable. We all have blame here, but we're not most to blame. Do you know who's most to blame for this? God is. God is the reason this happened. God is the reason the Holocaust happened. God is the one to blame. And they come to the conclusion, God must go on trial for the Holocaust. Pretty gutsy. Can you imagine men thinking that we could put God on trial? But they do. So the climax of the action comes when mankind it comes up with the judgment of all this sin. It turns against God and says, God is the guilty one. And so here's what they do. They find him guilty. Or they find God guilty and they sentence God. And here is the sentence. God, you are sentenced to homelessness, to hunger, to thirsty to being thirsty, to being terrified of death. God, you must be surrounded by misery and sickness, suffering even the death of an own child, and dying at last himself in pain and dishonor. That was what the human judge thought that was right for a God who was guilty of the Holocaust. As a matter of fact, they said the hellish journey will begin and three archangels will lead God to the sentence. Interesting play. The sign of Jonah. Who would have the audacity to put God on trial? 
And who, who, who would do that? Is it not really in the reality? Isn't it you and me sometimes? I mean, when life isn't going the way we want it to go, when things aren't working out the way we want it to work out, I mean, do you not say sometimes, God, how could you? God, how dare you? God, where are you? God, how many times do we allow our circumstances and the way we see God, and then we want to put God on trial for everything that is wrong and broken in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, in our jobs, in our world? God, how could you? Where are you? 2009 was a pretty dark year for the Jakes family. It was a year that we uh, entered into that fraternity you never want to enter into of cancer. When we found out that my beloved wife, Katie, had cancer, and we started a, an incredible journey. Uh, many of you have gone on that journey. Many of you are very aware of that journey. You know when you are told you have cancer, all the world seems to stop. And you have things like surgery, and you have things like chemotherapy and, and radiation. And I remember one Sunday morning, I remember one Sunday morning that I had to go and do what God had called me to go, go and stand up and preach the good news of the gospel, preach the reality of who God is and how good and gracious God was. And as I was getting ready that morning, I could hear the sobs coming from my wife in pain because of the treatments that she endured. And I couldn't handle it. I just had to stop. And I had to get on my knees and say, God, you've got to fix this. God, you got to fix this now. Time's of the essence here. I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to stand in front of your people and I'm going to say you're good and that you're in control and you are God. Do you not hear the weeping cries of my wife? God, fix it. Fix this. Well, this morning, we're in the sermon series the rescue of us all, God's people are saying to God, God, fix this. Fix this now. We're in the wilderness and we're thirsty and there's nothing to drink. God, how could you? How could you bring us here? God, why did you do this? God, where are you? God, fix this now. I think if I went on with my sermon and I just feel like I got to tell you the rest of the story. Let me just say, in that moment, when I was commanding God to fix the brokenness inside my wife, I realized I had nothing inside of me to barter with. I wanted to throw in his face. Do you not know I've been a Christian all my life? You know that. Do you not know that I've been gone to seminary? I've laid my life down to you. Do you not know that I'm a man that you have called? God, and I try to think of what can I use? What is in my back pocket? What is in my history? What can I use to make God do what I wanted him to do? And I realized I got nothing. And I realized that I had to trust and walk by faith. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of those moments, but I'm telling you, it was one of the moments in my life, one of the clearest moments where I realized that God was God and I am not. And I think it was one of the clearest moments when I feared him. Because I realized I had nothing to barter with. That God is a sovereign God and rules and reigns over all things. And God is good and God is in control. And I can't get it all to fix right now and I can't make sense out of it all right now. But God is God. And I just sat and worshipped. 
God would eventually heal my wife. He didn't do it immediately like I asked. He gave me the grace to go preach a sermon and tell people that Jesus was good, and he is. And even if he didn't do what I hoped he did and he did do, he's still good. But how many times in your life have you said to God, fix this? God, where are you? How many times have you put God on trial and really said, looking at my circumstances, I can't make you out as to who you really are. Fix this. So this morning we're going to see this text. It's God on trial. It's literally God's on trial in this text, if you read the language closely. And God's on trial. We're going to look at, the way I'm going to preach this sermon is a little bit different. I don't have three points for you. I want to talk about the trial. So I want you, I want to, I'm going to preach it like this. I'm going to show you the setting. I'm going to show you the charges. I'm going to show you the court procession. I'm going to show you who is accused. I'm going to show you the verdict according to God's word. And I'm going to show you the results. It's incredible. I mean, it is, it's incredible what happens when God's people put him on trial. So we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, we're going to read 1 through 7. And then we're going to look, we'll look at a few verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Hear the word of the Lord, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Raphidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with his people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling and of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Amazing story. But let's see what Paul says about it in 1 Corinthians 10. Picking up in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Think about the cloud. They're in the wilderness. Think about passing through the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, that manna. And all drank from the spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they over, were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, what an incredible story. What an incredible story of your people thirsty in the wilderness, putting you on trial, demanding that you provide for them, forgetting the fact that who is God, forgetting what God has done, and letting their circumstances define who you are and give them the audacity to put God on trial. But God, the greatest scandal in the story isn't your people's sins. The incredible reaction of what you do. What you do when your people grumble and put you on trial. Oh, the love and grace of our God. May everyone who is here hearing your word preached see and experience and taste the grace of God. Those online, those here. Oh God, speak through a broken sinner like me. God, I, I pray that you give us ears to hear your voice and the minds that will understand your, your word and that God, you would, your spirit would soften our hearts to embrace your truth and that God, you just give us feet that would walk in a manner worthy of your name no matter what happens. God, the things that I say that are wrong are merely my opinion. May those things fall away and be forgotten. But the things that are said that are true and contain the good news of the gospel, use those things to make us worship Christ the solid rock, our God and our Savior. And it's in his matchless name that we pray. Amen. I don't know if you can see this or not, but really here in Exodus 17, what we find is God on trial. I mean, this is what has happened. This is a, this is a courtroom uh, in many ways. The, the verbiage and the language of this uh, is God on trial by his people. And I want to start off by saying, let's look at the setting. So here they are in the wilderness, and it's called the wilderness of sin. Uh, interesting, like uh, here, it just uh, happens to be the name sin. It doesn't mean the reality of a moral condition that they found themselves. This is actually a place, um, but is it not apropos for God's people? Um, so they are in this place called the wilderness uh, of sin, um, and that's where we find them in God's story. Uh, remember what's happened? They've been saved by the blood of the Passover lamb, right? I mean, they've crossed through the Red Sea. They've seen miracle on top of miracle. God has shown them his strength, his goodness to them. He's rescued them. He's provided for them. But now they find themselves in the wilderness. And they're in the wilderness trying to get home. Remember, that's where I told you that's where we are, right, in the story. We, too, by God's grace, have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. That Christ Jesus has come and lived the life we failed to live and died a death we deserve. And, and because of his blood shed for us, our sins are covered and they're paid for. Death passes over us. Life has been given to us, righteousness, and yet we aren't home yet. We don't go from that grace to glory. We go from grace to wilderness, is that not where you find yourself right now? No matter how good life is, no matter what is going on, do you not find constantly there's stones and pebbles in our sandals? Why? Because we're in the wilderness. And it's difficult times. This is where God's people are. They camped. A rephidim is a place. And, and, and the, Hebrew, the Hebrew word rephidim, ready for this? It's place of rest. Okay, now put yourself in their shoes. God has got him on a journey. He's taken him to a place called the place of rest. And this place is clearly a misnomer. 
This is not a place of rest. There's a place of no water here. This is not a place of rest. This proved to be a place of complaining and whining. It makes me think of those of you who have ever traveled on I-95 South and you get close to that North Carolina and South Carolina border and there is that, that the south of the border place. Have you not seen it? I mean, they start sending you signs miles out. And every, every you get closer, south of the border, you know, Pedro says, pull over here. This is going to be fantastic. You're thinking, wow, this place must be amazing. Look at how many signs that are pointing to this place. And you go by and think, are you kidding me? Literally the last time Katie and I went past it, and it was like what, a month or two ago. We're like, is there any cars there? I mean, is there, is there anyone there? This is a misnomer. Pedro is lying to us. Has anybody here been to the south of the border for more than gas? So here are God's people. They're thinking, we're going to the place of rest, finally. Man, do I need some rest. I need, those, I need that shade. I need that water again. They get there, no water. Man, this place stinks. This place clearly is the south of the border. I mean, who in the world? So they go there, uh, and, and, and they have no water. They're complaining, they're whining. And then there's this place, Horeb. This is where they're going to go. But by the way, kind of cool. Do you know Horeb is the place that God first appeared to Moses? That's where he was, right? Horeb's the place where that burning bush thing happened, right? Where God reveals himself to Moses and says, whoa, wait a minute, Moses. Take off your sandals because why? You're on holy ground right here. I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And guess what, Moses? I hear my, my people's cry. And I, I see what is happening to them. And I remember I promised to deliver them. Moses, through you, I'm going to do it. We're going to go rescue them. It's going to be absolutely amazing. You're going to see what I'm going to do to the Egyptians. And wow, you're going to come back here, Moses. You're going to come back to Horeb. And our people are going to gather and they're going to worship me. So here God's word is fulfilled. They're back at Horeb. They're back at this amazing place. And are they worshiping God? No, they're complaining. They're whining. Their worship has turned into whining on this incredible mount. So that is a little bit of the setting. Uh, but we also have to see it's according to God, the commandment of God. Now, it says very clearly, God led them. He did it by sections. He had the people move out, a lot of them, and he took them from the wilderness of sin. God is the one who commanded them here. God has clearly led his people here. We remember we talked about this last week. Sometimes God leads us to barren places. Sometimes God's going to lead us to some tough things. And in the wilderness, God tests his people. He loves his people. He refines his people. If that's where you find yourself, this is sovereign God who's leading us. And this was supposed to be a place that God is going to test and refine his people. But it becomes a place where the people test and put God on trial. It's supposed to be a place. They, they, they sue him. They, they charge God with breaking his covenant promises with them. So these are the charges. If you look at this closely, if you can look at this in the, in the Hebrew, uh, when it uses these words quarreling, and when it uses these words testing, now this is the language of charges. This is like what's called a covenant lawsuit. God had entered into a relationship with them, promised to be their God and their provider, and now they're using the terms of a lawsuit in their language to say, God, we are suing you. God, we are charging you. I just picture that they're in the desert, they're walking around, and Dan Newland's got a sign. And he's got a big old sign. And maybe it's Morgan and Morgan. I'm not sure who's got the billboard business out there back then. 
But he's been saying this, been traveling in the wilderness without water? Um, have you slipped and fall? Has God done you wrong? Let Dan get you millions, right? I mean, look at anything. Yeah, man, God has done us wrong, man. I mean, I'm thirsty as all get out here. I mean, where is Dan now? Um, and I, I don't know. Uh, it was the billboard, obviously not. But does it not resonate with all of us? Can you not relate to driving down I four and see some lawyer smiling at you, saying, "You have something bad in your life. Let's turn it into millions. Let's 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 sue." So this is what God's people are saying. Let's sue. The people quarreled with Moses, his representative. They really, Moses is like, your beef's not with me. I'm just your representative. Your beef's with God. Do you know what you're doing? You are arguing with God Almighty. They grumbled. And the people tested the Lord. They put him on trial. And here are the charges. God, you broke covenant with us. You, you, you lied to us. You, you, are, you didn't do what you said you would do. You didn't come through. God didn't provide for his people, God didn't protect his people, and God wasn't uh, with his people. He's negligent. He needs, to be, he needs to be disciplined. This is clearly covenant lawsuit language. We see it repeated in things like Deuteronomy 33.8. And by the way, they felt it was a capital offense. They were going to stone Moses. Literally, that was a capital offense. You stone him. So here you go. They think, oh, God, you're on trial it's a capital offense. We're going to stone you. Well, we can't throw a stone that far, so we'll stone Moses. That's what they say. God didn't provide for his people. They didn't gather and say, you know what, guys? This, says, this place is a place of rest. Let's just pray. Has God, has God not provided for us? Look what God, can we just gather and pray? Let's have, let's have a prayer service. Let's have a revival. Let's get on our knees. No, no, no. They demanded. Amen. God, give us water. We are thirsty. Now, thirst could do something amazing. I mean, I've never been that thirsty, but they were thirsty, and they demanded. They demanded that God would do something. Didn't pray. Psalm 78:40. the Psalms would say it this way. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. This is what they're doing. I mean, they, God didn't provide. They, they didn't believe. They demanded provision. They said God didn't protect his people. Now, remember what God had done. I mean, it's amazing what God has done, right? He brought his people out of Egypt, right? Um, and now they're saying, well, God has brought them out of Egypt. Why? To kill them. That God's brought us from this place to kill us, to kill our children, to kill our livestock. Really? This is what they've concluded? Could he not have done it every step of the way? I mean, that Red Sea thing, what happened there? I mean, what about this manna stuff? I mean, look at God's mighty hand that saved you over and over and over again. Look what God has done to protect you every day. Are you kidding me? And yet they're in the condition saying, well, God, you're not protecting us. You brought us out here to kill us. And then they say, well, God wasn't present. Is God not with us or not? <laughs> Wait a minute. These people, these knuckleheads, they didn't think God was present. What did they have? They had during the day a cloud leading them around. They had at night a pillar of fire. Every day they woke up and they went and got this manna on the ground. I mean, they could look back on the rearview mirror and see God over and over and over again. A God who was with them. How in the world can they wonder, is God actually present? But they didn't think that God was present with them. 
What's true? God and his promises are your reality? What's true? How, how, how do you see God? Do you see God through the brokenness of your life and through your tears? And does that distort who God is? Or do you look at his word and say, this is who God is. And this is a God who's good. This is a God who's faithful and true. And you might have to redefine your good and faithful and true, but this is God. But they charged him. You didn't provide, you didn't protect, and you're not there. You're negligent, and you deserve to die. So you have this court procession. Let's start with a journey. The journey is that God says to Moses, okay, I want you to pass on before the people. Uh, here we go. We're going to go to court. Uh, God's on trial. Here you go. So pass on before the people. Um, and by the way, the jury, uh, the jury, I want you to take with you some elders of Israel as witnesses. Uh, they're going to act as the jury. Uh, they're the ones who are going to watch this proceeding. So come on, let's go. Pass to the people. Take with you the jury of some of the elders. And then, by the way, I want you to take the symbol of God's judgment. You know that staff in your hand that you struck the Nile and it became blood? You know that staff? You know what that represents? It represents God's judgment. This is God's judgment in your hand. Take that with you um, because I'm going to be present with you there. Um, and that, that staff that turned the Nile into blood, the symbol of judgment and justice. So here you got going, and I mean, who's the accused here? Well, here's where the story gets amazing, if it wasn't already. And God says, by the way, I myself, I am going to stand on the rock. God standing on the rock. God says, I'm the one who will be, watch this, accused. I'm the one who is going to be, um, the English use the phrase, uh, God in the dock. And the dock is a place they would set apart in a courtroom where the accused would stand uh, trial. God in the dock. So here's God saying, I'll, I'll get in the dock. Uh, I, I, will, I will be the accused. I will stand on the rock. God says, you want to put me on trial? Let's go. God on trial. Now, I love the Hebrew here. God stood on the rock. How did God stand on the rock? Some will say, well, this, this, this is a beautiful picture of the pre-incarnate Christ. This is, this is clearly, Paul's going to say this is Jesus. So clearly there's like this figure that's standing on the rock. I don't know. Or is it the glory cloud of God? I don't know. But all, here's what I know is that God says, I'm going to stand before my people on trial. Stand on the rock. And then, because all of Scripture is about Jesus, there's not one part of it, Old, New Testament, prophets, uh, poets. It's all about him. And Paul's going to make sure, by the way, the rock was Christ. For I don't want you to be unaware, again, 1 Corinthians 10, 1. Don't you want to be unaware? Let me skip to verse 3. That they drank from the same spiritual rock, the rock that followed him. And by the way, that rock was that Jesus was present. That that, and listen, it was literally a rock. The water literally came out of it. And they weren't, they weren't putting all the dots together right away. But here we see in redemptive history the reality that that rock of ages is Christ Jesus. So what's the verdict? Strike the rock. Are you kidding me? The verdict is treat him like he's guilty. Strike him. Strike the rock with the rod of God's judgment. 
Take that rod of judgment and strike that rock and declare him guilty. <laughs> and we see the beauty of Isaiah 53 in the, in the suffering servant, that what Isaiah would say 700 years before Jesus, it would say, but he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It's incredible. Strike the rock, the innocent one, and through him we can be healed. And John will tell us in the Gospel of John that they wanted to see that they couldn't believe that Jesus was dead already on the cross, but they wanted to make sure he was dead. So a Roman soldier took a spear and just wanted to just make sure he was gone. So John 19:34. but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. The water that flows from the rock. The blood that will wash away our sins. The water that will quench our thirst. This is Jesus, the true living water. This is Jesus, the rock. The verdict, strike him. We're guilty. We're complaining. We're moaning. We're putting God on trial. And somehow God has the audacity. He says, go ahead and try me and find me guilty. Because you find me guilty and through my guilt, being declared guilty for your sins, that you're going to find your freedom. You're going to find your washing. You're going to find your life. Strike me so that you can know the love of the Father. And the results, the beautiful results, is God took away the complaint. Water gushed forth from that rock and was able to feed a multitude, thousands of hundreds of thousands. A river flowed. You know, it's interesting. One of the commentaries said that there was some soldiers, I don't know, I think it was before World War II, uh, that were in the desert, and they came to a, a rock uh, that was, was struck, and behind it was... Uh, I think I call them, a, a, what do you call those things in the desert that run? Wadi? W-A-D-I, Wadi, I think. And, and out of that rock just flowed water. You know, I don't know what kind of miracle God did there. I don't know what was behind it. I don't need to know. But I know the verdict was this, is God removed their complaint. You're thirsty? You don't think I could do this for you? I could take a daggum rock. I could quench your thirst. But there's so much more. Water flowed from the rock and God's people drank. But what's really beautiful about this is that God bears their punishment. What kind of God is that? He was struck so that we could be healed. That's the gospel. That's the good news of what Christ Jesus has done for us. This is our rock through the ages. Boy, did I love being a part of Charlie's uh, uh, becoming adopted official. Was it amazing? I, I got to tell you, I shed some tears. I sat in the back and it was hard not to shed tears to see this, this, this finally come a reality that this boy is going to have a, a family. But what struck me the most was, was, was the judge. Of course I knew Charlie would be excited. That kid's incredible. Of course I knew the parents would be excited. They were so excited. Of course the family and friends would be excited. Of course Barbara would be excited. She poured her life into this. Of course. But then you see the judge ask for a tissue because she's weeping. And you see a judge that gets off and comes around and hugs the boy. 
And you sit there and think, are you kidding me? A, a, a judge that weeps, a judge that hugs? Does it get better than this? Yes, it's Jesus. He's a judge that wept over us. He's a judge that hugs us. He's a judge that was pierced for our transgressions. He's a judge who cried, but he's more than that. He's a judge that has secured our adoption. He secured it legally, that we are forever declared not only not guilty, we're declared his. But watch this incredible thing. That judge, how cool, wept, cried, hugged, but she went home to her home house, and Charlie didn't go to her house. We go home to Jesus because he adopts us into his family. He makes us his own. What kind of judge is that? But seriously, a judge that weeps and hugs and provides all the legal ramifications for sinners like us to be adopted into God's family? And he takes us as his own? We're his beloved sheep? That's the good news of the gospel. Psalm 95, 7, for he is our God and we are the sheep of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah on that day in Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Are you putting God on trial or are you embracing the good news of the gospel? Are you putting God to test or you're saying, God, I cannot believe your son was struck so that out of him could flow living waters that quenched my thirst. I can't believe that your son was struck, that blood flowed that would take away my sin, and I am forever yours. May we never grumble and put God on trial, no matter what circumstances, because of what Christ has done and is doing for us. May we worship and adore the one who is the rock of ages. Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Now, Father God, what an incredible story. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful because it's real and it's true, and it's so beautiful because it so clearly shows Jesus. It shows us as your people whining, complaining, grumbling, demanding, deserving your wrath, but getting your mercy and kindness, your grace. Oh, Jesus, the rock of ages, we stand upon you because you stood in our place. You bore what you should never have borne, the wrath of God. You, the spotless lamb of God, you were stricken. You were beaten. You were bruised. You were crucified so that we could be healed and that from you could flow blood that washes away our sins and water that quenches our thirst. Come quench it again, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.